Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around I spoke to Ed Southall. Ed is the course leader for the Maths Secondary PGCE at Huddersfield University. He's also a maths teacher and of course now a best-selling author with his debut book Yes But Why Teaching for Understanding in Mathematics being Sage's highest selling book of the year. And I tell you what it is an absolutely brilliant read no matter how experienced a teacher you are and surely it's a matter of time before some Hollywood big shot acquires the film rights. Now, long-time listeners of the podcast may well remember Ed's first appearance on the show, which was an absolute cracker. So, when I heard that Ed had been to Japan as part of the Impulse Lesson Study Project to investigate how maths is taught in the Far East and what we can learn from it, I just had to invite him back on. And flipping heck, I am glad I did. Because we had a fantastic conversation that covered the following things and more. Why does Ed feel puzzles are so important, both for teachers and students? And what makes a good puzzle? What were Ed's expectations before going to Japan? Then Ed describes in fascinating detail a lesson on sequences, comparing and contrasting it with how he might approach the topic with his students in the UK. How does planning take place in Japan? What does the scheme of work look like? How about the culture, both in terms of the students, the teachers, and in general? Then the big one, really. How will Ed's experience in Japan change his own practice? And then, just as we're getting on so well and the interview's coming to the end, I decide to ruin it all by suggesting that there is a danger in asking for students' thoughts and ideas when initially presenting a concept. Ed politely disagrees. Anyway, Ed is an absolute pleasure to talk to. And whether I chat to him at a maths conference or over Skype for a podcast, I always come away more knowledgeable and with plenty to think about. I now feel I understand the differences in approaches between Japan and the UK far better. And crucially, what we may want and not want to use in our own practices. I'll even forgive him for not agreeing with me at the end. The usual plea that if you enjoy this podcast, please give it a quick review and rating on iTunes. It really does make a difference both to the podcast rankings and far more importantly, to my ego. And please help spread the word about this podcast to your colleagues. Many of you are using them as CPD on the move, whether it's in the car on your way to work, whilst doing the washing up, or as Jonathan Hall tweeted recently, providing a soundtrack at a barbecue. Who needs Ed Sheeran? Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Ed Southall. I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. I'm sure you will. Oh, and get a pencil and a bit of paper ready for the lovely puzzle Ed shares at the start. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Ed, so in a rare treat, it is a return to the podcast for you. Now, we've done the speed dating question, so we've had our kind of romantic introduction last time. So this time, I thought instead we would talk puzzles, because I know you're a... I don't know if obsessed is the right word, but I know you're a big fan of puzzles from following you on Twitter, and I know you've got a new book coming out. So 
before we kind of dive a bit more into that, let's let's hook the listeners in. Do you have a puzzle to share with us? Uh, I do, yeah. It's find the smallest right triangle with integer sides in which a square with integer sides can be inscribed so that all four vertices are on the triangle and one side of the square coincides with the hypotenuse. Flipping it. Can you give us that one more time? I can, yeah. Find the smallest right triangle with integer sides in which a square with integer sides can be inscribed so that all four vertices are on the triangle and one side of the square coincides with the hypotenuse. Flipping heck. Okay, now that's, that sounds a classic. And just just tell us a little bit about this, Ed. So, well, firstly, tell us a bit about your new book, if that's all right. Sure. Well, uh, I've co-authored a book, um, a geometry puzzle book, and it's, it's, uh, it's a lot smaller than the other one that I wrote, and it took a lot less time, thankfully. Um, <laughs> And yeah, it's with a guy called Vincent Pantaloni, and he's a he's a French mathematician, and he he teaches in France. Um, and it's 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 all geometry. So we've, we've we've both got kind of a fascination with geometry, and anyone who who knows me relatively well knows I'm pretty obsessed with with writing geometry puzzles. Um, and so we thought we'd try and put it into a book, and we approached a publisher, and they were very keen on the idea. Um, and the kind of unique side to it, I think, or, or relatively unique, is that the the emphasis isn't just on the questions, but it's also on the style of the answers. So each puzzle has multiple solutions provided so that, in theory, if, even if you solve it, you still get a kind of uh, surprise when you look at the answers to see how else you can approach the problem. Nice. And just because I'm, I'm obsessed with puzzles myself... Why are they important, Ed, if that's not a stupid question? Like, are they important for, for just kind of math geeks like us, or are they important for, let's say, mathematically reluctant students to be exposed to? Um, I think they're a lot more fun than, than your standard questions that you get in lessons, first and foremost. So when we're, when we're doing maths in class, uh, a lot of the time the stuff that we give to students is very kind of trivial uh, because its intention is to practice a very specific skill uh, and that's kind of boring to me but I, it's necessary I guess to some extent but I think far more interesting is when you're, you're provided with a problem that you don't necessarily know the way into and you have to utilize uh, a range of skills and really think about how to approach it and, and it's that thinking that I think is the most enjoyable part of maths whereas when you've got say a worksheet on adding fractions together you know what you've got to do and you know exactly how to do it um so the kind of the thinking part is mostly removed from what you're doing and do the just just to kind of push a little bit on this do the do the core skills have to be in place first or can they be learnt in the process of solving the puzzle um i would say you definitely need a a core knowledge to be able to access the puzzles um for them to be successful but whether you have the, a range the range of skills required it, it, i would say you don't necessarily need them all as long as there's a way into the puzzle uh, from different alternate approaches so for example uh I, i'll always fall back to geometry but if you've got a geometry puzzle if you've got intricate knowledge of different theorems and and shortcuts and things then you can apply those and get to the solution probably a lot quicker than other people 
But if you don't have those skills, then you may have enough skills to go about it perhaps just a slightly longer way around. Got it. And let me just, again, just ask you one more thing on puzzles, if that's right, all right, Ed. And that is, um, can you teach people to be able to solve puzzles or is it kind of just a skill that you're either born with or, or, you, or you don't have? Oh, no, absolutely you can teach it. Um, I, again, geometry, I mean, I've picked up so many strategies on what to look for and, and how to approach uh, geometry puzzles over the last, sort of, just even over the last 12 months, really. I mean, uh, for example, uh, if you're looking at a particular figure and it's got a circle in it, um, a learnt behaviour that can be taught is to start looking for radii um, and if there aren't any, start drawing some in in strategic places to see if it, it unlocks any kind of new information about the puzzle. That isn't something that you would just necessarily naturally try out from your first uh, couple of tries at these sorts of things. But once you get used to the puzzles, then you know that that's probably something that you're going to need to use. Um, and so you start to try and find them. And... I, I'm wondering, is that something that's unique to geometry or, or are there similar things that you can teach kids that, to cope with algebra problems or number problems or data problems? Or is it just is, is it just something special about geometry that if you recognize a shape, you can learn to do a certain thing? Like you said, draw a radius into a circle. No, I think I think there's there's a lot of strategies that can be taught for, for any kind of problem solving. I mean, I think it's Paul, you wrote a book on it. Um, but just and, and as teachers, there's a lot of strategies that we can encur be encouraged to use to to help people unlock problems. So I guess the key thing is to actually just talk about the problem in general terms before even trying to get into the nitty gritty of solving it with numbers and, and values and so on. Um, like cutting through what is actually being asked. Um, so if you've got if you've got a, a kind of narrative behind a problem. Um, which we'll get onto soon enough because there, there were plenty of those um, when I was out in Japan. Um, first, just dealing with the narrative. You know, what is the question asking mathematically as opposed to diving in and trying to solve it? Just trying to figure out what the question is first and foremost and then moving from there and saying, well, what do we know? Uh, and what do we, what do we not know? And what do we need to know to be able to approach this problem? You see, I've, I have a bit of a theory on this, Ed, and I'm, I'm very interested in, in your take on this. That, uh, so a lot of the reading I'm doing um, suggests that um, novice learners don't potentially learn anything from solving problems, whereas expert learners do. And by novice, I mean um, an expert, I mean domain-specific expertise. So having that core knowledge first, say geometry, knowing your circle theorems and so on. Do you, do you agree or disagree with that? Do you think you could present... Um, say geometry-based problem to a, a group of novice learners who who perhaps weren't secure, say in circle theorems or their angle facts and so on, but be able to teach them the strategies to be able to solve the problem and then the skills at the same time. Or do those core skills need to be in place first for them to even understand the strategy of how to solve some geometry-based problem? If that makes sense. Uh, I'd say there's probably weight in presenting a problem that requires a certain skill that they may not necessarily have just so that they can derive the fact that there's a skill that they need um, and that might sound like a a trivial way of, of approaching it or maybe pointless to some people but I think if you present something that shows there is a need to learn something and apply it um, you've got the students a little bit more interested in the purpose of what you're trying to teach them 
Um, for example, if I don't know, division of fractions, if you can present a problem where they can rationally conclude, oh, there's a way of doing this by dividing by a fraction, but I don't know how to do that, that in itself is a valuable lesson because you're then presenting a kind of case for and a platform yes. for learning a new skill. That's interesting. Okay, all right. Yeah, now you partially sold me on that one. Um, and last last question before we move on from puzzles, because I notice on Twitter you've been tweeting out a few kind of reject puzzles from uh, your book. <laughs> so um, I don't want to waste them. <laughs> so what? Uh, what's your kind of criteria? What makes a good puzzle, Ed? Oh uh, well, yeah, we we literally did have a, a a small list of criteria for the book um, to make sure that puzzles were kind of acceptable for for the objectives of the book and and the first objective was that it had to look good um and that that might seem a bit daft but if if you think because they're all geometry figures i mean it's very hard to describe how how a geometry figure can look good and look bad i guess but um the the more minimal it is i guess uh the nicer it looks certainly to me and and to vincent um so we wanted puzzles where there was very little information presented in the figure um, so that it wasn't too cluttered or or um, so much information given that there's a kind of overload or too many lines and, and, and shapes within it that made you just think, God, that looks like it's going to be a lot of work. I'm not going to bother. Um, so that was kind of the first criteria. We had to kind of look objectively at the figures we were drawing and say, does that look appealing? Um, which I know is a subjective term, but we kind of agreed on what, what appealing meant to us. Sure. Um, and then on top of that, we wanted to make sure that there were multiple approaches available, um, which is one of the main reasons I wanted to co-author this book, because um, it's very easy for me to write a puzzle and solve it, but then to see it in a different way and approach it from a different perspective is quite difficult, particularly if you're the author of it, because you, you, you kind of get into a mindset of, well, it's obviously solved like this kind of thing. Um, so to have a second person to bounce off and, and for them to look at it from a different perspective and, and produce a solution that surprised me um, was was, nece- was absolutely necessary for, for this book to be made. And, and similarly, Vincent would write puzzles and I would approach them in a completely different way to how he was expecting. Uh, but it was quite difficult because you kind of present the puzzle and you're like, oh, I've got a great way of solving it. But as soon as you start telling them anything about the way you're solving it, um, you're kind of persuading them to think in a particular way. And what you're trying to do is make them think completely independently of your own thoughts. Got it. And I know I keep saying this is the last question I'm going to ask you on puzzles, but I keep thinking of other ones. So please forgive me, Ed. But is is um, do you think creating a puzzle is an important skill for either teachers or even students to have? Or is it just something that's kind of, again, just more kind of a bit of a hobby? Is there, is there something kind of pedagogically important about creating puzzles? Um, I think there's something important about being able to recognize a good question. Um, not necessarily being able to write one. I think as long as people are writing them and you have access to them, I don't think it's a it's a it's an absolutely necessary skill for a teacher to have to have to be able to say right, I'm going to present this as a fantastic puzzle. Um, but linked to that, I do think that a, a really important skill for teachers is to be able to ask questions in different ways, which is kind of I guess the, the first stages of turning something into a bit of a puzzle. Um, so you know, if 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 you're if you're teaching, um, I always use area because it's such an easy one to illustrate. But if you're teaching area of a shape, 
you've got to know as a teacher all the different ways in which you can ask a question so that you actually know what's being assessed by the answers you're receiving. Um, and if you're just giving them the base and the height, you're going to get you'll you'll get the right answers. But what are you really testing? You know. Whereas if if you've got that ability to say, well, what do they need to know? to solve this problem what happens if I give them extra stuff will they be able to pick out the stuff they need to know um, what if I don't give them enough will they be able to derive things that, that they need to know and, and I think that is a particularly important skill for teachers but in terms of being able to take any topic and turn it into a, a wonderful puzzle that's appealing to the masses I don't think you know I don't think that's something that everybody has to be good at necessarily Got it. And, and how about students, Ed? Is there any value in trying to encourage students to create, well, let's say puzzles or even questions themselves? Well, I think the same applies to them as opposed uh, with regard to um, teachers being able to strip stuff out and add stuff in. So if, if uh, there's a great activity from Don Stewart where he gives them answers and says, you know, what could the question have been? Uh, and that's, you know, things like that are such a good opportunity for students to just think a bit deeper about a topic and, and surprise them with, with what they suddenly have to think about when they thought they'd, they'd mastered something. Um, and you could put a figure on the board and just say, you know, how can I turn this into a question? How can I make it harder? How can I make it easier? And I think those discussions are really important for kids to appreciate um, the depth of knowledge that you need to 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 be able to answer these kinds of things got it super well finally uh, we're going to move now on to on to japan ed and first just just give us a bit of background so um, how, how did the trip come about first um well i was interested in visiting other countries to see how maths is taught um specifically for my own research i'm doing i'm doing a phd that's focusing on um the influence of other countries' education systems on our own uh, policies and, and encouraged methods of teaching. Um, and in, inevitably, that's um, driven from our side of things by these uh, international tests, the PISA test, the TIMS test, and so on. Um, and it happened before in, in the early 2000s where I think Finland was coming out really well and we weren't. So everybody flocks to Finland to see how they teach things and see if we can steal all their ideas. Um, and it's happening again now with um, with the Far East, so sort of Shanghai and, and, and um, you know, China. That everyone's looking at these 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 education systems and saying, well, they're doing far better than we are in these particular tests. Uh, what can we learn from that? So that uh, I won't bore you too much with what I'm with with my particular study, but it it, it led me towards wanting to go and see. Um, how it's actually taught in those countries. And so I started looking at the PISA tests and the, the highest ranking countries this year are China and Japan. Um, and I saw on Twitter um, Jeff Wake, who works at the University of Nottingham, um, he was advertising for people to apply for um, something called the Impulse Project, which is going out and looking at uh, teaching in Japan. Uh, it, there's kind of a dual role of it. There's, there's something called lesson study, which we were looking at, and the fact that it was focused entirely on maths meant we were also looking at maths lessons. Uh, so I applied for it, um, and I was successful, and the University of Huddersfield funded it, which is where I work. Um, so off I went, and it was a two-week trip, and I saw um, eight different uh, lessons 
all maths lessons, uh, ranging from primary school kind of level all the way up to secondary. Um, and we watched different teachers uh, teaching, in, I would say, a very similar style, really, overall. Um, and uh, kind of learned a lot from them. And then we got to kind of quiz them and, and, and interview some of them about the decision processes behind the lesson that they planned and their evaluation of the lesson afterwards. It's fantastic. And, and before we dig deep into the lessons, Ed, what, what were you expecting before you went on the trip? What did you think you'd see? Um, I thought I would see um, a lot of stuff that wouldn't be transferable to the UK. I was quite, I was a bit cynical. I thought I'd see some really interesting things, but also I had in the back of my mind uh, something that, that I still carry with, with regards to Shanghai and Japan to some extent. Um, the, the elements of culture influencing yes. their ability to do things, how they're doing it, um, which affects how transferable it is. Um, and so I was expecting to see, you know, immaculate behavior from students um, and uh, not much differentiation and um, a strong emphasis on um, practice, I guess. Um, and I didn't, I didn't see exactly what I was expecting, but I just thought, I thought I would see sort of some pretty decent teaching with astoundingly good subject knowledge. Um, but I felt like I would probably leave the trip thinking, well, that's great, but it would never work over here kind of thing. Got it. Fantastic. Well, that is a perfect teaser, Ed, for, for what's to come now. So Ed, do this however you want, but can you just talk us through some of these lessons? Yeah, I mean, it, it'll be a little bit difficult over just audio because there's, there's a few diagrams and things that are quite important, um, but I shall do my best. <laughs> um, so I'll start with what, what I considered probably the most, uh, one of the most interesting lessons that was relevant to me. Um, so it, it was kind of, it was pitched sort of year, I think it was a, the equivalent of year seven for us or maybe year eight. Um, and it was a lesson investigating uh, sequences, linear sequences, um, with a class of about 40 students uh, and just the one teacher at the front. And can I just check, Ed, sorry, at this point, is it just like a normal kind of state education school, like comprehensive, and is it mixed sex as well? Uh, it's a mixed school, and it's it's a normal lesson to some extent, but it's it's been a very, very thoroughly planned lesson, and it's been a joint planned lesson because it's part of this bigger picture, which is this this idea of lesson study. Got it. So they're not necessarily taught in the classroom, although some of them were. Um, they're taught in a, in a in a room that is capable of um, taking on a lot of people to observe. Got um, it. So these lessons were um, they were they were taught with a group of between twenty and sixty. Uh, additional people in the room watching the lesson flipping act so it, it's a very kind of intrusive observation compared to our observations jeez and and um, are the kids are the kids set it ed uh no no they're not set it got it got it so, so you've got a fully mixed ability class um and so that he's teaching this 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 uh, linear sequences lesson and and this at the start of the lesson they're all sat in their seats and and he presents them with uh, a diagram and the diagram is um, a set of four different um, 
kind of progressions of uh, a sequence um, of array uh, uh, made as an array, so a, se- a series of dots that, that that the pattern expands and expands and expands, if, if right. you like. Um, if anyone's been to the website visualpatterns.org, um, it's just full of these kinds of things. Yeah. So imagine a sequence of dots, and it expands in a particular way, and then expands again in the same way, and then expands again in the same way. Um, that's what he presented on the board. And so there were four figures, each one getting gradually bigger. And he basically said at the beginning of the lesson, you know, how many dots are there in each figure? So it's just a counting exercise, of, uh, essentially. Uh, so students count them up, um, and they give him the right answer. And then he poses this question, um, how many would there be in the tenth figure? Um, which which got them thinking a lot more because the tenth figure obviously wasn't on the board, um, and the tenth figure was quite hard to imagine. You couldn't just imagine it in your mind because the, w- the way in which the figure was expanding, there, there were too many kind of iterations between the one that was left on the board and the one that you had to get to. Yes. Um, to to picture it very easily. So he provided them with a piece of paper with the, the first four on. So he, they basically had a copy of the diagram that was on the board. Um, and he gave them quite a long time, I would say probably 15 minutes, um, to come up with how many dots there were in the 10th figure. And 15 minutes is a flipping long time yeah. um, by my standards. You know, If I was teaching that, um, I probably would have given them a few minutes, and as soon yes. as one or two got the right answer, I would have gone, yeah, it's right, and then started to move on. And, and what um, are, the ki- are the kids working on their own in this point, Ted? Yeah, so they're all sat um, in individual seats, individual desks, all spaced apart. There's no... And they're all sat facing the front. Right. So I guess you'd call it old school by by UK teaching. Yes. Um and they were all told to work independently. They, they, there was no talking whatsoever. So that kind of that that was familiar to me in terms of what I was expecting with regards to behaviour. Sure. Um, and they they worked really really diligently as well, which which um, didn't surprise me. But again, was something I was thinking: Would our kids do this? I'm not sure. Yes. Yes. Um, but regardless, that you know, they 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 worked hard on it to to try and figure out the number of dots for the for the tenth figure. And these are young kids, so it's not like year 11s who just go, "Well, I can," you know derive this really quickly um and the teacher kind of encouraged them to use diagrams to help them and and when students started to get the answer um and he noticed that some were getting the answer uh his kind of extension for them was basically to think about it in a different way think about it in a different way approach it from a different way and convince yourself that the answer you've got is correct um so while some students got to the, the the number was 40 so some kids got to this 40 dots relatively quickly within a couple of minutes um and he made them think about it again uh and try and communicate in in, in on, well communicate on their own notes they weren't talking to anybody um how they knew 40 was true kind of thing and can i just ask uh, during this 15 minutes what's the teacher doing is he at the front is he wandering around and how are the kids communicating that they uh, that they've got an answer of 40 so they they're not telling him anything the kids they're just wor- <laughs> they're just working on their own and then they basically stop working if they've if they've finished <laughs> right okay and he's not telling them anything he's just walking around the class observing where everybody is at this stage so he's only picking up that kids have, have 
got 40 by seeing it on their desks kind of thing right and then he just kind of whispers to them like think about it another way yeah well he announced it to the class after he noticed a few of them but at no point at no point did he mention 40 at all he just said some of you some of you think you've got the answer see if you can approach it in a different way to convince yourself that your answer is true got it um and some another kind of thing that was that interested me was because in the back of my mind I, i was constantly kind of comparing this to how the same exact lesson would work with classes that I've taught or would not work. Um, And when I do teacher training and I talk about these kinds of investigative approaches, I'm really wary of of some of the major pitfalls that can occur. And one of them is obviously when kids finish early, what do you do do with them? Um, Because if you you just kind of move on, then the rest of the class don't struggle, they don't get anywhere with it, and you've just given them the answer, so the point of the exercise is kind of lost for a lot of them. Um, But similarly, what do you do with those that aren't getting anywhere? What do you do with those kids who are just staring blankly at it, going, no idea, what do you want me to do? And it's like, what hints do you give? Sure. Or do you give hints? And so I was really interested to see how he dealt with these kids that couldn't... um, couldn't make any headway with it they were just kind of staring at it they had their they, they had you know classic hard thinking faces on i don't know if they were just really good at acting or what but they, they were obviously thinking about it but they weren't writing anything right and so he he his advice to them and I, i'm only laughing because i just think god this would not work with some of my kids he, he, his advice was basically right you, you obviously can't get anywhere with this yet just keep thinking about it nice okay <laughs> nice yeah <laughs> it's like i'm not gonna give you anything um, heck. so but they did they just kept thinking about it and they kept prodding at this problem and trying to chip away at it and get somewhere with it and whilst some of them never did uh others did and and this was a real kind of conflict to me because i i would never do that um whether that's the right thing to do or not i don't know i would never do it because i would be worried about things like well I'm not helping them and they need help. Of course, yeah. Would be my mindset. And I can help them. So by choosing not to help them and just, and just we're wasting each other's time. They're not getting anywhere. I can help them get there. I need to intervene and do something. That's always been my kind of mindset on this. Um, but I was persuaded to, to some degree after speaking to the teacher and, and a few others about the strategies. Their thinking behind not helping uh, and this really kind of struck a chord with me. As soon as you start to give them um, hints, you're completely narrowing um, their thought process um, in approaching the problem. Right. So you're effectively stopping their thinking because you're giving them parts of the answer. And so they're going to come up with a solution that fits exactly the way that you would have approached the problem. But the point of the exercise isn't to do that. The point of the exercise is to get them to think about it and create their own understanding and interpretation of how to solve the problem. And I thought that was really interesting because I thought, how many times do we do that as teachers? Just kind of give them give them the way into the problem or give them a little bit of a hint or give them, uh, you know, going back to the circle thing, draw in that extra radius that's going to help them and go, well, now you can see that you could do this kind of thing. Um 
It's, it's interesting though, isn't it, Ed? Because like, I, I, I guess I was thinking the same as you there, that I'm all for struggle to a certain extent, but 15 minutes of a child to, to use, I know it's not the right phrase to use, but essentially making no visible progress yeah. is tough, right? Like yeah, that must it be is. a tough, tough thing to witness and, and tough for the kid, I'd imagine as well. Yeah. And, and I'll be clear, I don't think it would work with, with a lot of my classes. I don't think I could let them struggle for that long. Um, whether that's something that I could develop by nurturing the classroom environment in a different way, uh, potentially, yes, um, or whether I would just need to adapt to the the culture of my classrooms and have them struggle for, for more time than I'm used to giving, but not to the extent that they did, yes. um, I could probably try that. But to me, there, there were obvious, I mean, it wasn't obvious initially, but after speaking to him and others, there, there were benefits to the strategy that they sure. were using. And I thought, I can take a bit of that. But I also thought, there's no way I could do it exactly as they're doing, because my class would just fall to pieces. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it would. You know, I'd, I'd have, uh, you imagine a, a, well, a mixed ability class, let alone a, a, a particular set um, what happens with most of our, well, certainly with my experience, if someone gets the answer, the rest of them stop trying because they're like, well, they've, they've got the answer, so why should I bother now? Um, and that's not all kids, but but that's a that's a reality. That's what that's what we deal with with a lot of kids. Oh, absolutely. And certainly once, if you're that child who's been struggling for 15 minutes and you see a lot of people have got the answer and you're still not there, that that's tough. And, and did you observe, Did you? how were those kids kind of reacting, the kids who were struggling and not getting anywhere? What was their kind of take on it? Well, I don't think they felt like they were a failure right. for doing it. And I think that that leads into a bigger thing that again I think is something we could we could we could learn from in that the culture of learning was very very different um, and it's something that was clearly developed by the teacher over time or by or by the education system I guess over time so if you get something wrong or if you can't do something it's not a failure it's it's you know it's a struggle that's a, a struggle worth doing and the the celebration is that you've stuck with it and struggled with it got it um and it goes back to this idea of the answer is is less important than understanding the process and i think that was some that was that was one of the biggest things i took away from the trip um you know for us in the uk there's there's so much emphasis on getting the right answer above and beyond everything uh, in my opinion. So if you get the answer, almost it doesn't matter what the method was. It's like, yeah, you got the answer. You understand what's going on here. Let's move on. Whereas it was the complete reverse over there. And it was, we're not that bothered about the answer. In fact, I can tell you the answer because we're not focusing on the answer. What we're focusing on is how have you got to the answer? How has someone else got to the answer? And what was their thinking? And just just all that time was invested in understanding why and and how you can approach things in different ways to just get that that deeper understanding of 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 the manipulation of methods to get to the end point got it flipping it so all right so we're 15 we'll say 15 minutes into the lesson what what happens next so we're 15 minutes in and then he stops the class because he can see that a lot of people have got to a position where he can do something that's in his plan uh, with the responses that he's got from the students. Right. So at this point, he starts uh, a, a sort of whole class discussion and he's asking people to give him their their methods of 
of getting the answers. So he basically announces that the that the answers uh, forty. Right. So instantly, those who didn't who who were struggling, uh, in a way, it doesn't matter anymore. They've got to the same point as everyone else. The answer was okay. forty. So the focus isn't on forty. The focus is on let's think about how we get to the answer of forty. And so he picks off people who did get the answer of forty, and he asks them for their calculations. Um, and so different students are providing different calculations and he just writes all these calculations on the board. So for example, a couple of kids give him sort of four times 10, a couple of kids give him 10 times four. Um, and then there's some far more kind of interesting answers that, that really make you think, Oh, I wonder how they did it. Um, and it was things, I'm just trying to find it in my notes here. You'd have things like, um, oh, where are we? Uh, 10 plus 4 plus 6 plus 20. Oh, I've got them here. 20, 21 times 2, subtract 2. Uh, 4 plus 4, open brackets. 10 subtract 1, close brackets. 20 times 2. 11 times 11, take away 9 times 9. So all these different people have got to the same answer, but they've all come to it in different ways. And so he just write, he lists, I think there was 11 in total. He lists 11 different methods to get to 40 on the board. And there's no diagrams or anything with the methods. It's just, it's just the numbers and the operations between them. And no, no discussion from the kids of how they got their methods at this stage. At this stage, no. He's just putting them all on got the it. board and he's not asking the kids who are giving them where they came from because he's going to, because he's going to turn that into an activity next. Got it. Got it. So he's got on the board these 11 or 12 ways of getting to 40 and the kids have got the diagrams in front of them of the first four figures. Um, and he says, you know, so what I want you to do now is think about any method on the board that's not your method and try and understand the logic behind what they've done without them telling you. Got it. So, again, the answer's not important. This is not about 40. This is not about going, yes, I've got 40 dots. Hooray, I'm right. It's about let's try and figure out how everybody's approached this and how they've come to the conclusion that they've come to, knowing that 40 is right. And has he um, has he directed kids to to start on a specific one, or is it literally just choose one that isn't your method? No, no, they just uh, he kind of encouraged them to do it for all of them, but he right. didn't give them any guidance on start with this one or start with this one or whatever. And so then another load of time passes while they're working independently trying to figure out where do these other methods come from, and they're using the diagrams and they're drawing out the tenth figure um, in a in a series of dots. And it was absolutely fascinating to watch because they went through and explained, like different students explained what they thought other students were thinking. And it just felt like such a rich experience for them and for me. And the teachers getting real insight into how they're thinking about these problems. Um, and the kids are getting real insight into different approaches to, to deal with it that are all equally kind of valid. Um, so I've got a couple of quotes from some of the kids. One of them was kind of saying, um, I made it, I, I turned the figure into a square by rearranging the dots. And then I could see that this was, you know, three times three and this was four times four. And I subtracted the, the, the dots inside the figure that you can't see, but would have been there. Um, and then you had other students who just kind of focused on the, on the numbers. And they said, well, this is obviously a linear sequence. 
it goes uh, four times one, four times two, four times three, four times four, and so on. So they'd ignored the dots completely and just just not used the diagram to help them in the slightest. Yeah. Um, and some kids were counting, you know, the columns of dots in different ways, and some were counting the rows in different ways. Some were counting left to right. Some were counting right to left. And they were all equally valid, but just getting the kids to think about it in those different ways and try and appreciate the different kind of um, expressions that all meant the same thing was was fascinating. And they were so deep in thought, as were, as were you know, the people watching. We were all invested going, oh, how has that kid done it that way? <laughs> Um, and some of them were straightforward, but one of them puzzled me for absolutely ages until the, they, in fact, after the lesson, I had to keep looking at it until I finally figured out what their logic was. But, but there was logic, you know, and, and what was what was also impressive was that every single response was equally valid to the teacher. So four times ten was the shortest expression that someone had written down. So you could argue perhaps the most efficient. And one of the expressions that another kid wrote down was 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6 plus 7 plus 8 plus 9 plus 10 plus 11 plus 11 subtract, open brackets, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6 plus 7 plus 8, close brackets. So they had this enormous expression, but it it wasn't mocked, it wasn't dismissed as inefficient, it was, that's perfectly great, you've solved it, you've, you've thought about it in this way, brilliant. And I thought that was really, really important. To, to help nurture the kind of environment that he had in the class. Um, you know, just giving every kid the, the, the value of, of, you know, whatever you contribute is, is brilliant. And, um, and just, just on, a, on a practical level here, Ed, so how long were the kids given to do this kind of uh, investigating of other people's approaches? And how, how's the teacher collecting answers? Is it kind of a whole class discussion, but a child putting the hand up, offering their interpretation of a, an explanation, and then is he throwing it out to the rest of the class? Did anyone else see it differently and so on? What, what are the kind of practicalities of how this, this stage happened? So he, he gave them a short amount, uh, probably between five and ten minutes to, to kind of interpret the expressions which was a lot shorter for a lot more work which was, yes. I thought was quite interesting um but then he he spent what just an incredibly long amount of time again com- comparatively to what how i would do it and he, he literally went through every single one of these things that were written on the board so there's 11 expressions and every single one was taken apart and the kids offered their views on how it was constructed and then he reflected back against the person whose idea it was and they concluded you know that that, that is the way they were thinking about it or whatever um and after the three or four i was getting bored i was like my god we're going to do all of them and then you get to number 10 and you're like please look we get it there's loads of ways of doing it um and again, it, it's that kind of conflict of what would work for me and what's working for him. Um, I, I would never dream of putting 11 different methods to find the same answer and then going through really detailed um, ways of, of deriving those 11 methods because it took forever to do, to do that <laughs> like um, how, how long yet what would you say well it, it was a 45 minute lesson in total and that took him nearly to the end of the lesson at that Flipping point heck, geez. um and i just i mean i know what my kids would have done that have that, that have been really interested initially going oh look there's loads of different approaches here and then they'd have been really interested in looking at a few of the ways in which it was derived and then after a, after say i don't know a few, i don't know how many minutes but i would gauge it 
by instinct are looking at the sure. looking at the faces on the kids. But you know, they know the answer's forty. So so just looking at method after method after method to derive the same thing, it gets a little bit tiresome, I would imagine. And what what's the justification for doing it? Because as you say, like there's one thing getting to the answer. The, the the key point I'm assuming from this lesson is there are lots of different ways to get there, lots of different representations, all of which are equally valid and kind of mathematically equivalent. But what's yeah. the justification for taking it that extra step and and going through ten or eleven of these methods? Do you think? Um, I think it's twofold. I think first first of all, it's about being able to visualize things in different ways and appreciate that there's lots of different approaches and kind of re- revisit a problem even though you've solved it to get a deeper understanding of, of, of the problem itself. Right. Um, but it also linked really nicely into what was going to be the follow-up lesson um, in terms of um, creating the nth term. So the last few minutes of the lesson, um, they they derived that the, the sequence um, nth term was 4n and they did that in, in like seconds because they've already done linear sequences they can do the algebra behind it um, so they're staring at this 10th term and they're saying you know it's 4n and, 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 and you get 40 out of it but then what he did which I thought was brilliant was kind of look back at these 11 12 expressions on the board and say right how can we show that these are all equivalent to 4n nice so we're then revisiting them all a, a, a second time, which he didn't do in the lesson. It was kind of a homework thing that would be brought to the next lesson to turn them into algebraic expressions to show that 4n is equivalent to all these other expressions. Um, so you're kind of tying in their equivalent expressions. You're tying in their, um, you know, reducing an expression to its, 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 its most minimal simplistic term. Um, and you're really starting to test their manipulation of, of algebraic expressions, which I thought was great. Um, and he also wanted to kind of emphasize that, yes, you can derive that it's 4n, but how does 4n actually help you structure the array? And the answer is it doesn't really, because you only know how many dots there are. You can't see how to structure the dots just on 4n. Yes. Um, so then you can kind of look at the other expressions and say, which of these expressions actually really helps me construct the figure um so there was this kind of added appreciation of you know algebra is there algebra is useful but you also need to interpret how to use it for for a particular situation and if it's if it's about the construction of the dots then whilst 4n is supposedly the most efficient way of presenting the nth term it's not the most efficient way to show you how to construct the diagram got it now if i was to kind of um play Ofsted Inspector or something here for, <laughs> for this lesson. I mean, what? So say I say, I mean, the classic thing that I think is an absolute waste of time, but like, let's do it anyway. And pace. What would you say about the pace of the lesson? <laughs> I would say it was pretty slow. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but did you get the feeling? And again, is this is this more a cultural thing? Is this? Um, specific to this this guy's lessons like were the kids I assume there was no behaviour issues with the kids but were the kids like could you see they were getting a bit fed up towards the end of things yeah so it's interesting about behaviour because I would say that they weren't behaved even though they were behaved and I'll just I'll I'll just make that clearer so they were not disrupting there was nobody throwing anything there was no one talking Um, everyone was doing what they were asked to do Right, so in in that regard, behaviour was great. Sure. But if you looked at the kind of nuances of of their behaviour, you know, 
they were dr- towards the end. You know, if I I always think if I'm drifting, my God, an, an eleven must be drifting. <laughs> yeah. And you can tell that people are getting disinterested and distracted because it's it was so drawn out. Um, and so in in from that perspective, they weren't behaving because they weren't fully engaged in what they were doing. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, you know, some of them, bless them, were focused the entire time. I mean, they must have been exhausted by the end. Um, so yeah, it it was drawn out, and there were reasons for it being drawn out, and they're they're able to draw it out because they're not going to have to deal with behaviour and so on. Um, but I would question, you know, just that those kids who were drifting, you know. What what's in it for them for that sure. for that last you know that last part of the lesson they're they're pretty much disengaged and it's not it's not necessarily being challenged. Um, so I mean just to be clear these these were absolutely not pinnacle perfect lessons sure at all and everyone has the same kind of struggles one way or another with with, with teaching and with classes. Um, and I was glad to see that because I. I it made me appreciate that, that, I mean, I do anyway, but I, I knew that there would be things that I thought we did particularly brilliantly in the UK. And it just kind of drove it home that we are, we are much, much, I don't want to use the word better really, but more aware, I should say, um, of um, who's engaged, who's not engaged and trying to fix it. Yes. Um, and checking whether everyone's with us and doing, you know, all the AFL stuff that we do with the whiteboards or whatever your strategy is, just to check that people are where we want them to be before we move on. Yes. Um, and I didn't get a lot of that from from most of the lessons that I saw. And I suspect part of that again comes down to culture in that you know these kids care a hell of a lot more. This is an awful statement to make. Um, a lot of them care. I'm trying to be <laughs> diplomatic here. They just can't <laughs> care more about why they're there and the value of the of, of education than than a lot of the kids that I've taught. Yes, um, I've thrown in I've taught there as a caveat. So that <laughs> know, nice, nice touch. <laughs> um, and so you, you have that kind of diligence of well, if I don't get it, I'm going to go away and make sure that I do. Um, and I did see some differentiation in some of the classes, um, but not not a huge amount. Um, and I was told that you know outside of classes, if there are people who are continuously struggling, there are interventions that are rolled out. But I think it's far more explicit in our education system um, and emphasised a lot more. And I guess it's emphasised a lot more because we have kids who will not come on board unless we kind of drag them on board or, or whatever yes. um so it, it, it was difficult for me to to kind of see that some of the kids weren't engaged and not start walking away thinking well that that that, that last part of the lesson was a mess yes and you know was it a mess you know it, it was a mess to me because i didn't feel like those kids were engaged at the end but at the same time a lot of the kids were engaged and you know they're coming back to the lesson in the right place the following day. Um, you, see, you see that that interests me that as well because a lot of a, com- a big conflict for me that but you know. And you so assessment for learning is something I'm I'm obviously absolutely obsessed by. Um, 
what was there any so you, you mentioned you didn't see much of that at all was how did the teacher know what the kids had understood or not understood is it literally a case of just walking around and and obviously when he's when he's getting kind of one-to-one responses in during the discussion part towards the end was there any whole class assessment happening at any stage no no and did you get a sense was that something that seemed odd to you or were you happy that he well two things really happy that he knew where his kids were at the end of the lesson or was it the case that the assessment was going to happen at the start of the next lesson and he trusted that the kids as you mentioned would go away and do whatever was necessary to make sure they were in the right place it's it's obviously hard to gauge because i only see the lesson as a standalone lesson sure sure um and I, I was assured that the, the, the lessons that we were watching were very much uh, a specific style of lesson and that not all lessons fall into that style. Um, so they do have lessons where they just kind of drill um, practice for certain specific things like, you know, doing loads of addition of fractions or loads of whatever. Um, and, you know, he knows where the class is because they mark the books a lot. Um and they adapt the lessons according to where the students are. So there is that AFL happening, but it's mostly from, I mean, again, just from the single lessons that I saw, it, it seemed to be more outside of the lesson than inside the lesson. Um, but that said, they, they do, some of them were adapting to what was happening in, in the lesson in, in kind of real time. So if, if people were struggling with something, they wouldn't just push on. Um, but some classes they did because, you know, they had this meticulous lesson plan. And, you know, we, I, I guess part of it is the fact that you've got up to 60 people watching you, you know. Yeah, of course. You, you, you've got your plan. You don't want to stray from it because it's the great unknown. Um, so a couple of the lessons we saw, they did they did just kind of plow through and do that classic thing of grabbing onto the few kids that you know are with you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but again, it, it wasn't about watching perfect lessons. It was no, about, no. It was about looking at the style of teaching and and the the professional development tool that is lesson study. Flipping out. This is fascinating. This ad. And be- before we dive into kind of how these lessons are planned and timetables and so on, I wonder were there any of the other lessons that you saw that had particularly interesting features that you think it's worth discussing? Um, the the features were generally the same for most of the lessons um so the pace always felt a little bit slow um the the stressing the point always seemed to get a little bit tired at the end um but at the same time the depth that they went into was always really really interesting and the the variety of responses and and the 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 thought that the students were putting into stuff was absolutely incredible um, I'll just break away from that for a second just to give you a statistic that I thought was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So one of the uh, – and just keep in mind as well that, you know, Japan is ranked third on, on, on the, the the PISA testing. So they are – you know, their education system absolutely works for them, and they are yes. achieving way above and beyond our own system and, and, and many others. Um so whilst it's very easy to say, oh, well, that, that wouldn't work for me, it wouldn't work for me, it's obviously working for them. Yes. Um, but a statistic that really kind of opened my eyes a bit, and this, this is again going to one of these international tests. So was a, a, someone did a study of, of the TIMS scores in 2003, 
Um, for anyone not familiar, Tim's is it, it's another international kind of maths test, and 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 different students from different countries sit it, and it's marked, and then the percentages or percentiles or whatever all compared and and and, and ranked effectively. Um, and so, looking at a grade four class, which I think is our, oh, I think they're a year below, so that would be grade five for us, I think, year five. Um, they did this test, and in Singapore. Um, students had been taught 82% of the content on the TIMS test. Right. And on average, they scored 74%. So they're getting 74% of a test right, and they've been taught 82% of the content on the test. Got it. In America, um, they'd been taught about 82% of the content, and they were scoring about 58%. Ooh, so they've been taught a lot of it, and they were getting a lot of it wrong and a lot of it right as well. But again, they hadn't been taught everything on the test. Sure. Um, the international average was that um, 73% of content had been taught that was on the test. And the and people were scoring around 53%. So, so just below uh, the United States. Sure. Now, the really interesting stat for me was Japan. So Japan, they'd been taught 54% of the content. Right. Right. So just about half of the content on the tests was stuff that they'd not seen or or been taught explicitly how to approach or anything like that. But they scored six, on average 69% on the test. Flipping egg. So you compare that with Singapore. Singapore does way better in terms of well not way better, only 5% better. But they've been taught, you know, four-fifths of of, of the content. Japan do marginally worse. Uh, worse is probably not the right word to use. But they've barely been taught half of the content. Sure. Yet they score higher than what they've actually been taught. So there's this discrepancy there that just that points towards, you know, the, the Japanese students were way better than anybody at taking stuff that they didn't know. And I guess this goes back to your original question earlier on about giving them problems where they don't explicitly know how to solve it. Yes. Um, and they can hack it, and they and they chip away at it with their own mathematical reasoning, and find a way in and solve the damn things. <laughs> Flipping out. And I just thought, what a remarkable statistic that is. Jeez, and well, yeah, well, absolutely. And I'm guessing as well. Well, obviously, you've you've said from from the data that once they have been taught all the content and they're competing against kids from other countries who've been taught all the content, they're still performing well, right? So it's not just the case that they perform particularly good when they haven't been taught something. That that kind of high level of performance continues. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they're, they're high performing regardless. Sure. Um, but the the thing that makes them unique, I guess, yes. is the fact that they're able to attempt stuff that they haven't been taught. Flipping heck. Successfully. Jeez. Well, well, I'll tell you, something you've said there is interested. Well, a lot of what you've said has interested me yet. But you mentioned um, as well that these aren't perhaps the... Every lesson wouldn't be wouldn't be like this. And no. the, the kids still are drilled in the basic skills. Now, I'm assuming you didn't observe one of those lessons. But do you get any sense of what those lessons would be like? Well, interesting. We didn't observe any explicitly. But we were shown around schools before the lesson study. So we would we would be walking amongst teachers teaching lessons, although we weren't explicitly in a room observing them. Sure. Um, and I didn't get to see it sadly, but a few a few of the people with me 
basically stumbled across one of these lessons um and it and it looked very traditional in terms of the way that we sometimes teach these kind of things where they had kind of um worksheets and a set list of questions that were very similar in nature and it was about applying a particular skill so that they could develop it um and and that it made sense to me that that must be occurring because the lessons yes. we were, the lessons we were seeing you know they were so proficient in particular skills um like you know they found the nth term in two seconds well there must have been somewhere along the line yes. practice at finding the nth term yeah um so yeah it does occur um but i think part of the issue there i guess for us was that the the lesson study lessons are in a particular style with a particular focus yes um, and so we we tended to see the same style of lesson which was very much a problem solving lesson and do you get a sense um, of the kind of proportion of lessons that are kind of drill-based versus these kind of more problem-solving lessons? Um, honestly, no, I didn't. I, I, I had no idea. I can only imagine that, um, that there was... I, I believe there's quite a lot of emphasis on the problem-solving stuff because it's one of the biggest kind of philosophies about mathematics. Yes. That it should be problem-solving-based. And it, another thing that kind of made me think a lot is, I don't know if you've ever looked at the PISA tests or the TIMS tests. No, no. Um, they're worth looking at because the style of questions in them is um, quite different to the style of questions we tend to use um, for the majority of our teaching. However, in, things, in, in Singapore and Japan the style of questions that are in these tests are very much the style of questions that they use more frequently. So, they, so would it be more problem-solving style? or Yeah, they tend to be worded problems um, that create a scenario and prompt, prompt a question about the scenario, and then you have to interpret that as a mathematical question and then solve it. Um so whereas you think about our sort of GCSEs and so on, you might get a, you might get a few of those, and you do get a few of them. But a lot yes. of questions are things like solve for x, or you know yes. rearrange this, do this explicit instruction now uh, are a lot of the questions. Perhaps not so much in the new GCSE, which I guess is part of the agenda. Sure. Um, whereas um, if I can just find one of the questions that was posed, it'll give you. A, uh, Okay, so so this is an example of the sorts of questions that they would be prompted with. Um, uh, a, a teacher shows uh, an origami crane, um, and they start to build it, and then they say, "How many sheets of origami paper will they need? Will each person need to have to uh, to create, you know, x amount of cranes or something like that?" So it's got this kind of real world element to it, and then yes. they have to kind of try and interpret it. Um, another problem was about painting boats. So it was, it was something like, um, you know, five buckets of paint will paint will will totally cover, um, I don't know, three boats. Um, how many buckets? Uh, how many boats will seven buckets of paint cover, or something like that? Got it. So it's not an explicit mathematical sort of thing to solve. It's it's a worded question that needs interpreting first. Um, and I know we do do those, but they do them all the time. Yes. Um, and I did wonder if, if if there's any weight in the thought of, uh, you know, they're at a distinct advantage because of that. And if we, for those tests. Uh, yes. And if the tests looked more like the sort of stuff, the, the stuff that we do, would that change 
where everyone's ranked. I don't know. And I'll tell you what I'm wondering as well, Ed, and I don't know if I'm going to articulate this this clearly enough, but I'm wondering whether perhaps one of the reasons we go wrong, and if in fact we we do go wrong, is that perhaps many of our lessons are kind of hybrids where we try and do a bit of the drilling and then we try and do a bit of the problem solving, but probably never do them both justice. Whereas it sounds to me like when they're going to do a drill lesson, that is exactly what it is. Let's just hammer the skills, get them sorted. And then when we are going to do a lesson like you observed there with the linear sequences, we then, we're not even going to waste our time doing some kind of fluency start or anything like that. Yeah. We are just going to dedicate the entire lesson to this problem. And, you know, if we'll just see where it gets us because we've, we've got the core skills in place. So anything else is kind of a bonus. Well, would that, would that be a fair thing? I think so. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's about right. Um, I, uh, what I find interesting, like in the UK, you know, we use like the Enrich problems and so on, and and, sure. and they're a great resource, and they are exactly the sorts of things that they do over there. Um, but I, I'm I rarely see a teacher deliver an entire lesson dedicated to an Enrich problem that, yes. that goes and or, or one that goes well with that much time dedicated to it. Um, the ones the ones that I see that are really much better at it are the ones that say that, that dedicate say 30 minutes 25 minutes to that kind of problem um but people tend to and again this is just from my experience of observations um they'll take a really good enriched problem that's got loads of scope to go deeper and all the rest of it and it, and they, they stretch it out across the 60 minutes which you know over in japan is working great but i've never I, I don't see that working well with us um because of the reasons stated before, you know, behavior kicks in, boredom kicks in. Some kids, some kids really run with it and, and reach solutions quicker than others. Um, so I think really th th there's work to be done there um, to because those those lessons are fantastic in terms of what we're trying to get kids to do and the tasks that they're presented with. But the practicalities of delivering that really really well are are tricky and yes. I don't know. Is it worth is it worth shortening lessons? Is it worth cutting a lesson in two and doing you know half on something and then looking at your problem stuff? So you don't. So you're still getting that quality of of looking at problem solving and, and thinking about stuff and struggle, but you're balancing it with the culture of the classroom, which is let's be honest. You know, if they get bored, I need to start worrying about behaviour. Yes. Um, and if they don't persist with things, how am I going to force them to persist? And then force is an awful word again, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know what you mean. And I'll tell you, the, the other thing I wanted to ask before, again, we dig into the, the kind of planning and, and timetable side of things is in terms of assessment, because obviously there's been a lot of folks over the last kind of year or so here, and especially with Michaela, with this low stakes test and regular retrieval practice. And I interviewed um, Professor Robert and Elizabeth Bjork about the importance of retrieval and um, interleaving and so on. Now, you mentioned there was kind of a little bit of interleaving going on with that sequence lesson where it's linking into um, collecting like terms and simplifying expressions and so on. But what about what about kind of regular tests of retrieval or, or low stakes tests and anything like that going on? Um, not that I saw. And um, they, I, they do they do do work in their books and that is assessed by the teacher and, and marked and so on. But I don't. I don't think from from what I saw and what I spoke to some of the experts out there about it, it's a completely different culture in terms of testing. There, there's, I mean, first and foremost, and this shocked me, there's no kind of GCSE or A level equivalent. Really? So there's what no, 
there's no end point exams which was bizarre to me so so you you have you have in, in what is i think year nine there is an end of year exam and that is used to inform um whether people go on to um high school essentially whether they go on to sort of year 10 11 12 to do maths right uh, or, or whatever subject but it's not scrutinized in the way that it's scrutinized here so it's just it's basically just an entry test to 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 carry on your education and and the vast majority of people pass in and most people go on to do their their further further education but there's no kind of Ofsted-y type scrutiny there's no kind of league table of schools there's none of that kind of stuff and again with a levels or our a levels there's no exam there at the end what they have is entry exams for universities which is what we used to have back in back in the day um so the whole kind of culture of assessment is just is dramatically different to to what we're used to um, but I, I mean, I should add, I've only I, I've talked to maybe two or three people on this who 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 are familiar with it. And by all means, if anyone's listening and thinking, no, that's not my experience, just just let me know because I'm 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 a relative novice in this area. I'm just going sure. by what what people who who were out there were telling me. Um, but that fascinated me. This idea that that assessment can be so far removed to, to, from what we know it as and how we perceive it, and and you know the what it's used for um, as a comparative tool for, for quality assessment and so on. That's fa- absolutely fascinating, that, Ed. And, and that, that brings us on nicely to kind of wider aspects of, of, of lesson planning and so on. So obviously, certainly kind of my reading of, of Shanghai and stuff is that a lot of a lot of emphasis goes on to planning. Teachers have a lot more planning time. Planning tends to happen collectively. What was the experience um, in Japan for how, how planning happens and how much time teachers have to plan? So... Again, there's a kind of duality to this. The lessons that we were watching were specific lesson study yeah. lessons. So they were really, really um, almost overplanned, and and they were planned with a group um, and a, a kind of a, almost like a panel, and they have like a uh, an expert in there who who could be from a university or, or an expert teacher or whatever who is helping influence the planning of that lesson. Um, and the planning for that particular lesson would have taken weeks as opposed to an hour or two. Sure. Um, the everyday lessons, um, most of the planning goes, th- is, is, is derived from the textbooks. So they have a specific textbook that the, that the district use. And I'll come on to how that's decided in a minute. And then they get a kind of teacher guide with that which gives them explicit guidance on how to teach those particular topics. So there's a lot less of what we have in the UK of, of, of individual teacher interpretation of stuff um, and a lot more of, you know, you go along with um, what the textbook writers have told you to do because um, the, the amount of thought and, and kind of science, science behind the questions used in the textbook, how they use, why they use, the sequence of everything um, is is very very rigorous, um, and so the kind of perception there, which which I've, I've no reason to disagree with, is you know these guys have provided me with these resources and they are the pinnacle of the experts in this country, yes, and so I'm going to do it that way. 
so and did you get a chance to see the textbook Ed and did you get the sense is it obviously if you could understand it would it be something that you would be happy delivering yourself well you see again I'm conflicted just through just through cultural differences I guess um I always think things can be done better or differently (laughs) well and and you know I, I would get distracted if i thought that i was always going to be teaching something the same way every time yeah and i'm constantly reflecting and thinking there's got to be a better way of doing that um and usually there is and you know uh, again going back to good old don stewart you look at his resources sometimes and you're just completely enlightened and you go wow that's a completely different way of approaching yes, that. yes. and i want to do it that way um so i i like the idea of, of being able to to plan stuff in my way um, and deliver stuff in my way but uh, you know it, this sounds terribly arrogant but I've been teaching a long time and, uh, and I'm reasonably good at it so I feel enabled to uh, to do that yes. um, but if you took an NQT or something I can imagine it would be quite reassuring to know that even if you're not teaching even if your teaching is not amazing you know that the resources and, and, and the structure behind them is very very good yes Um so yeah, I, I I wouldn't like it just because I've grown up with something different. Sure, but yeah, flipping heck, as you say, it must something's working, right? So yeah, flipping heck. Um, can I ask as well? Uh, did you get to see a um, a teacher's timetable? Um, I didn't see a timetable, but I asked a few um, of the experts and 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 people who organised the trip and people who've taught out there before about the kind of weightings of lessons sure. against against non lessons. Um, and unsurprisingly, they teach a lot less than we do. <laughs> um, so, in a less in a day, um, there's usually six lessons in a school, and uh, a primary school teacher would teach four out of six lessons, and a secondary would teach three out of six, roughly. Flipping heck! And the rest of the time, do they have responsibilities, or is it dedicated? Yeah. So, to- so I, I believe this is different to 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 shanghai i don't really know that much about the the timetables for shanghai but those other three lessons are not sitting around planning um they are used because there's no there's no formal kind of support structure with the staff in like there is in the uk so you don't have your send coordinators you don't have your pastoral you don't have all of that kind of stuff so those kind of extra things are taken on board by the the teachers so ah, for those right. for those additional lessons, you would be doing those kind of duties, um, pastoral duties, clubs, that kind of thing. Um, teachers are contractually obliged to be in, I think, something like forty or forty-eight hours or something. So they're 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 in schools a lot, doing a lot yes. of work, and it's and it's you know you you can't just leave school at, at say four o'clock if you if you finished all your work kind of thing. You have to stay there for a bit longer. Um, and it's 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 a there's a lot of work to do there, um, but it's not all in front of the kids. Got it. And um, last question on kind of uh, lessons is, is schemes of work. I'm obsessed with schemes of work at the moment. Ted. Did you get a chance to get a sense of what order topics are taught in, or anything like that? Yeah. So I've, I've, I managed to look at the, some of the books, um, some of the textbooks, but obviously they were in Japanese, so that was a bit tricky to. Uh, <laughs> to uh, get my head around but they uh, they don't teach as many topics as as we do and i think uh, that again wasn't surprising to me the the uk curriculum seems completely stuffed at the moment um with just so many topics and and you know 
part of the reason we don't do a lot of these investigations into processes and, and deeper thinking about why we're doing what we're doing is because we just don't have the time. Yes. Because we've got so much to get through and all these high stakes assessments um, and progress checks and, and all that kind of thing that we just were under so much pressure to get through stuff. So, so what gets cut? Well, it's, it's those lessons that on the surface seem perhaps less important you know if they can get the answers they can get through a test so who cares why it works or or, yes. or how different people approached it to get to the answer uh, hence the emphasis on answers i guess in in our system um, and i assume it's the case i mean you mentioned that the district follows a particular textbook so i assume it's not the case like it is in the uk where schools have their own individual schemes of work people are constantly rewriting what order they teach things and so on everyone follows the same order do they uh as i believe they all follow the same order or they're at least strongly encouraged to right um and the order is basically the order in the textbook and in fact um some of the feedback in some of the lessons we watched from from the kind of panels w was discussing you know the reasoning behind the order of the stuff in the textbook and it's it's, it's very thoroughly thought about yes um and sometimes i didn't dis uh, i didn't quite agree with it so the, we watched a lesson on surds um, and they and th this particular school again I, I don't know whether it's it's standard but they they taught surds before they taught Pythagoras. And oh, I flipping heck! And I yeah. thought that was really interesting, and I I, I was like, you shouldn't. I, I was like, that's dumb. <laughs> I just, that is that is that's stupid. Don't do that. Um, but they do, and they've got their reasons for doing it, and that's fine. Um, and they were valid reasons. It's just that I personally disagree with them. I just don't think you should do it that way around. But. Um, yeah, but in terms of the textbooks, um, so the, the the kind of equivalent of the Department for Education, um, they they take bids for people to write these textbooks, and there's a, there's a kind of a panel that scrutinises the quality of all the books that have come in, much like they're doing with the primary schools here at the moment, um, and then they decide upon um, a, a group of textbooks that they think are of the high enough of a high enough quality for teachers to teach from so across the whole of japan there's something like six or seven textbooks available right that have been endorsed by you know government or whoever um and then the districts um which i guess is like the um i don't know what the equivalent would be here the the leas i guess sure um they decide amongst themselves which of those books they're going to use and so within a district, they just use one of those books. But you go district to district and you might find the book is different. And would it be the same book throughout primary and secondary? Is it kind of like the same series of books, if that makes sense? Um, I'm not entirely sure about secondary, but for, certainly for primary, it's the same series of books. Got it. Flipping heck, Ed. Um, and uh, again, just, just in general, before we come on to your kind of final reflections on it, um you mentioned culture and culture is often things that gets, gets kind of banded around and i've been fortunate enough to to go to kind of bangkok and see schools in cambodia and the culture is different and i wonder if you can kind of articulate as best you can what what was different about the culture of education and learning in japan um it's a it's a lot more highly respected uh which i don't think anyone would be surprised to hear um, similar to you know China and all the rest of it, it's it's embarrassing to be enumerate. Right. Um, so 
it's 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 embarrassing to be illiterate here, but you know everyone's proud of being crap at maths, <laughs> um, and that's one of our biggest obstacles as, as maths teachers. That you know, yes, parents and teachers within schools and teaching assistants within your own classroom, and I've even met maths teachers themselves who are just like, um, yeah, it's okay to not be great at maths, and you're just like, what? Yeah. Um, I mean, and with that, that's one. I would probably say that's our biggest obstacle in the UK generally. That that from all sides, people are told that it's fine to be to to not be good at maths. Yes. Um, and I've spoken to. I think I spoke to you about this last time. But for me, a big part of not liking maths is not understanding maths. Um, and you you relate that to an you know speak to an art teacher about the kids in their class who who can't draw or can't draw very well comparatively to other kids in the class guess what they hate art yes or, or speak to the PE teacher about the kid who hates exercising funnily enough they hate PE yeah um it's just that it gets we get we get more of them because we we teach it more frequently and it's really really hard <laughs> for some kids um and so as soon as you don't understand stuff you just kind of shut down and go well none of this makes sense what's the point in doing it anyway yes um, so that, to me, that's the biggest problem we have that they don't have. Um, then obviously the behaviour thing. I mean, imagine people. So many teachers get bashed for different things in the UK. But if you imagine you had a perfect class every single lesson that wanted to learn, yes. You know, what a huge obstacle you've just overcome with that. I mean, absolutely. Look at the research about students about classes that have got one really bad kid in them and how that affects the progress of all the other kids yes um it's massive you know um so you you take behavior into consideration you take the fact that they they want to learn you take the fact that the parents are really keen for them to learn and obviously all of that shapes the success um and i don't doubt that we would be world leaders in maths education or in any in any subject, if we had those things um, as as good as other people do, um, and I, I think it, it's it's wrong that we often look at the ways in which we're teaching maths um, and saying, oh, we can improve everything by changing the way we teach. And 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 whilst that's true to some extent with with some small changes, and and there's definitely lessons we can learn from different people, we're always going to have that barrier of um, culture yeah flipping heck no you're right Ed and um, to kind of start to move to wrap up I just want you to reflect on a few things if that's alright and these might be impossible questions to answer but, but just try your best um, the first is what what surprised you the most because you mentioned your kind of preconceptions coming in there now you've been back and you've had time to reflect what, what were the biggest surprises from your trip um well, just just as an aside, I was surprised that there's no blooming bins anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing we've got on them anyway. So yeah. <laughs> where where are your bins, for God's sake? Um, hardly any bins in the school. No bins in the streets. Oh, it's a nightmare. But no litter anywhere because they all take ownership of their litter. So, but there was we were literally we had to we went to a school and we had to bring our lunches with us, which is fine. So we all brought these little plastic bags with food in. Yeah. We ate our lunch in, in the school in a designated room because it's, it's rude to be eating in the corridors or, or for the kids to see you eating. So we ate, we ate in this designated room, finished our food, and then we were like, where's the bin? Oh, there's no bin. 
Oh. <laughs> so we had to put all our kind of packaging in these little plastic bags and tie the knots on the bags. And we were literally carrying bags of rubbish around oh for the rest of the school day. And worse still, we then went to a restaurant afterwards that didn't have bins. And <laughs> so we took into the restaurant all these bags of rubbish. You're joking. <laughs> it's absurd. Eh? Absolutely absurd. Jeez, God, you never, you never hear that. Ed. That's a good, that's a, a unique insight into Japan. There, I like that. Nothing, so nothing to do with maths, but bizarre. No, I like it. So Bin's the biggest surprise, and um, any, any other surprise. Uh, I suppose I should go back to education. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the biggest lesson that I learned from it was uh, just going back to what I said earlier. Just, just the the strength of um, talking and discussing procedures and methods and, and what they're doing and why they're doing it, um, valuing any answer um, regardless of whether it's a long way of doing something or a short way of doing something. Um, just the, the amount of time and, and, and strategy it required to develop a really strong culture of learning in your classroom so that people aren't afraid to answer in any way shape or form people are willing to try and understand other people's methods people are willing to try and think of a second way of doing something even if they've got the answer Um, refocusing away from the answer and saying you know will the answer is important and we'll focus on that later on but for today and for them for however long we're going to just try and understand what's going on mathematically and we're going to ponder and we're going to come up with questions and we're going to try and answer things convincingly uh, and and that's what maths is isn't it you know maths education the maths we teach in schools isn't that's not really what maths is about what maths is about is is querying things and finding patterns and and, and thinking well does this occur all the time or just in this instance you know can i can i generalize this what's going on here um, is there a pattern within this pattern? All those kind of things are, are what make maths amazing. And so much of that is lost in schools that it's no wonder that, that lessons start to feel dry and, and, and clinical. And do you think that is, is that something that a classroom teacher listening to this could bring into their own lesson, regardless of what's going on in the rest of the school, the rest of the maths department? Or is it something that, is a kind of whole school thing. No, I think you can do it on your own. I think, I, I mean, I've done, I, I felt pretty proud at, what, at my last school of, of developing what I felt was a really strong culture of, of, of learning. And one of the main strategies I used was to just come down overly hard on people who were, you know, mocking someone else's answer yes, or scoffing at something uh, and having those strategies to deal with people who say, I don't know or I don't get it, that don't take um, their ownership of the problem away from them. So you know, yes. so often someone says, I don't know, and you go, okay, and you move on. Well, then they're always going to say, I don't know. So what are you going to do to fix that so that actually they know that they have to give a response? Even if it's equivalent to I don't know, they must have thoughts on it. If they're thinking yes. about it, they'll have ideas. And even if those ideas don't come to the conclusions they want, they're valid ideas and we want to discuss them and share with them. But it all takes uh, a lot of effort, a conscious effort from us, the teachers, to to develop that. But I found within, I don't know, two, two three weeks, people stopped laughing at other people's responses. Yes. Um, 
because they knew they'd get in a whole lot of trouble. Like just uh, honestly, I just came down like a ton of bricks on them. It was it complete. Yes. It was completely disproportionate. It really was. But it fixed the problem. Instead of just going, no, don't laugh at them. It would be right, right, get out, or right, yes, you're on a seat too, or right, you're going to get a note in your planet, or right, I'm going to ring your parents tonight and explain to them that you are distracting everyone and, and, and making them not want to answer in my classroom. Yes. And I, by doing that, eventually, and, and again, it was a relatively short amount of time, they stopped. And when they stopped doing that kind of thing, people start wanting to answer more, even if they know it's wrong or if they're not sure if it's right. They start to accept that it doesn't matter and all all we're doing is discussing stuff. Um, I'll tell you what, Ed, I'm going to be a bit controversial here, right? Seeing as we're, we're getting on a bit too well here for, for this podcast, so <laughs> let's, let's, let's see, if we, see if we can mess things up just at the end. Um, I, I've been thinking of late, and I'd be very interested to, to get your take on this, that there's a danger whenever we specifically when we introduce something for the first time so uh, take something like um let's take nth term to, to go back to that lesson so obviously not you said obviously the kids were familiar with nth term and could comfortably come up with 4n and so on what's your take on when you're introducing a skill like linear sequences finding the nth term for the first time i'm at the point now where i almost don't want the kids to get involved in my initial explanation what i what i would do in the past is i would write i would put a problem on the board um and i would say right how do we reckon we solve this now i'm talking here about the first time kids see this the initial skill acquisition phase and what would happen is kids would come up with two or three different ways and they wouldn't be quite right and it would then be my job to almost interpret what the child was saying and say, right, I know what you're saying, but let's see if we can rephrase that a little bit. And I'll kind of turn it around and eventually turn it into a method that was kind of mathematically sound using the right language and so on. In the meantime, the rest of the kids, there's a danger, I reckon, that they're getting confused, that their kind of half understood ideas are now getting muddled in with how the child's trying to articulate it. And it becomes a bit of a muddle. Whereas now I'm leaning towards more me taking full control of the explanation the first time round, going through a worked example, almost with the kids in silence, then giving them chance to kind of reflect on it. And then maybe a discussion can come later on. But what's your take there, Ed? Would you have them? Would you have that discussion in that first instance if that makes sense um i would <laughs> <laughs> perfect i was hoping you'd say that right con- convince me then but you see you take my point that it could go wrong right oh, course, you take yeah. my point uh, that, i don't right, i don't so think your method is is incorrect as such i would just my style of teaching um lends itself more to having open discussions about sure um what people's thoughts are and you know eventually coming to a way of approaching something or or recognizing that something needs to be solved in a particular way and then if if they don't know that way then obviously i will explicitly teach it to them Uh, i'm not a fan of this idea of oh they can just derive everything of course they can't you know we're the we're the masters of knowledge we're the ones who are trying to get them to learn skills that we have you have to transfer those skills at some point they're they're not just going to figure everything out so um, why not why not transfer it initially then because i want them to think about it first and i want them to to understand the need for whatever we're about to teach them and i want i want to hear their thought processes about um what the issues are around the question and uh, hear how they think they could approach it and then try and draw some conclusions on why that might not work or or, or why it would work um but i think those discussions are are really 
important to get everybody on the same wavelength about what's what's being presented to them. I think the risk for me is if I went in there and said, you know, what we need to do here is 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 find the general term for this sequence. Uh, I'm going to show you how you do it, and then we're going to talk about it, um, which I think is what you're alluding to. Um, to me, there's that detachment then of, well, where's my investment in this? You're just you're just kind of telling me to do stuff. I agree, but just to flip it around, um, what about so let let's take your approach of the discussion base discussion first. Let's say ten fifteen minutes pass by where kids are coming up with loads of, loads of different points of view. Almost by definition, the kids there's going to be mistakes made there. There's going to be kids saying things wrong, kids not quite grasping it. How do you undo that potential damage there? Because if you're at the end of that going to try and tie it all together into a coherent way of explaining it. I don't think you're at square one. I don't think you're at the same place you would have been at the start of the lesson. I think you're almost behind square one, having to play catch up, trying to convince some kids who potentially may now be switched off from this topic, thinking, I don't have a clue what he was going on about. I don't know what she's going on about. I'm really, really muddled up with this now. I don't think I'm going to get this. So whilst I completely see about the need to get a buy-in, and I think there are other ways of doing it, I just worry that there's too much of a danger in this 10, 15 minute discussion when first introducing a topic uh i we're, we're having a very polite disagreement here. <laughs> <laughs> no, i know i know i, I, I can beep out um, any words that you no, want to say I, I appreciate your opinion <laughs> <laughs> and i must say it's only something i've been considering the last 12 months i must say but i'm just interested in other people's take on this I, so yeah few, disagree as much I'm, as possible. i'm with you in that there is a risk of them going backwards absolutely sure and i think part of part of the difficulty there is making sure as a teacher that any ideas that come up that don't work are diffused and are fully explained to be false so that people aren't getting too invested in an idea that doesn't go anywhere yes um and then from there drawing the logical conclusions of how things cannot work and how other things will work Got it. That that's tough to do, though, right? Oh, absolutely, that's... absolutely. And I would, I would, um, in agreement with you. If I found that that I did feel people were going backwards when I was doing it, then I'd probably stop doing it or adapt. Yes. Right. The last thing you want to do is is send people going backwards. And and uh, as a similar kind of thing, it's like when you've you've demonstrated something or whatever, you've, you've got to a point with the class where they all kind of understand what you're doing and then you introduce that first independent task and the question's off kilter and it's not quite what they're expecting and then you've taken three steps forward with them and then it's all undone in one swift swoop because your example's poor or whatever. Um, and going backwards when you're at your most confident is, is, is not great. Absolutely. Well, I, th I don't think we disagree too much there, Ed. Well, that was no good. I, I needed to get that <laughs> off my chest and I thought this was you were the perfect man to bring uh, it up. If, if only everybody disagreed like we do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Once we're off air, we can then tell each other what we really yeah, think. I, did, <laughs> I didn't even put caps lock on. <laughs> <laughs> um, my last question about uh, Japan you've kind of half answered this but I just wondered if you could kind of sum it up is um, what's going to change in your practice Ed ne next time you teach or next time you're planning a lesson what will be the big things that, that you'll do differently um, I think that the, the biggest most practical thing that I want to do more of and I will encourage uh, others to do is to um, 
explore different approaches to things and um, explore them with the class and not try and narrow down everybody's thinking to doing everything in one specific way all the time. And there will be instances where one method is is better than others and I will encourage that method and there will be instances where I only want them to know one method because it's it's far more efficient than others and we're constrained by time and all the rest of it fine but there will be other times where actually I want to explore something and I want to go into depth with it and I want to figure out the ways in which people think about stuff um, to try and get a richer kind of more more in-depth understanding of what's going on with stuff Got it. Fantastic. Um, and to wrap things up, Ed, just um, time for your big three. Now, you're in a unique position here. You're the first ever guest to have two sets of big threes. So um, I wonder what kind of websites, blog posts or however you want to do it, you'd like to direct listeners to. And I'll link to these in the show notes. Well, I can't remember what the first ones were. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to put geogebra.org on there just because I've been using it to death over the last sort of 18 months and it is just the most amazing thing ever, ever. And do you, can I just ask on that, Ed, do you tend to build your own stuff or do you use kind of JoJo tube and take pre-made ones? What would you recommend there? Um, well, f- for, for my work, it, it, it's usually starting from a blank sheet. Yeah. Um, but as, as a classroom teacher, I mean, the, the, the quality of the demonstrations and things that you can find on there without having to build anything are fantastic and so many of them are interactive and so many of them are animated um it's definitely worth looking into rather than sort of googling randomly for things start with there and there's almost certainly something on there that will help you yeah excellent choice love that one what about number two um probably mathforum.org m-a-t-h-f-o-r-u-m.org and people might know that a bit more as Dr. Maths or Dr. Math or whatever it is. And it's a huge forum where basically anything you, any kind of queries you have about maths or how maths works or, or how, why something makes sense, uh, it's all answered in there or to some, or most of it's answered in there. So it's a really useful resource for teachers to enhance their subject knowledge. Oh, that's superb, superb choice, Adam. What about number three? Uh, MathsChallenge.net, which I might have put on the last one. I can't remember. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I think this is a new one, this. So MathsChallenge.net is a website that, that whoever ran it stopped running it, in, I think, years and years and years ago. So it, it's it's kind of a, it's a, it's a dinosaur now. It's just an archive of stuff. It's not updated anymore. But what is on it is um, hundreds of amazing... Um, difficult questions in maths for for high school kids and they're organized in in four tiers of difficulty you've got one star three to four star four star is generally kind of a level uh three star is your top end year 10 11 and then two and one star kind of below that um and that stuff is just it's been an incredible influence on me on, on challenging students and being able to write better questions that's fantastic. Excellent choices. And I couldn't let you go without giving a little plug to both your books, Ed, because when you were on the show last, you were just in the process of, of I think, almost finished writing your first book. And now you're about to release your second. So just just tell us about those two books and where people can get hold of them. Uh, oh, do I have to? <laughs> <laughs> the publishers will like, just say it. Um, so I wrote one called Yes, But Why, which is about enhancing teachers' subject knowledge um, and explaining why things work in maths. And the best the best-selling book as well, Ed, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and the one that's coming out in autumn is is uh, a little bit more kind of informal. It's it's a puzzle book. It's a geometry puzzle book. Um, anyone who kind of follows me or looks at my site, I, I post difficult geometry problems all the time, and it's that kind of stuff um, with multiple solution approaches. Superb. Well, Ed, thanks so much for returning. Oh, I to forgot to say what that oh, one's sorry, called. Sorry, go on, go. It's called... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Whoops. publishers are going mentally. Uh, <laughs> that's going to be called Geometry Snacks. Geometry Snacks. That's fantastic. Well, superb, Ed. Well, thank you for making your return to the podcast. No I have a- absolutely loved that discussion. That was a fascinating insight. Even I even enjoyed our little disagreement at the end. Uh, there, so... I've, got, I've, I've just realised there's one thing that I really wanted to tell you that I've forgotten to tell you. Okay. Um, very quickly, going back to differences between Japan lessons and, and UK lessons, they don't use any technology at all. Ooh. They just use enormous blackboards, and it is absolutely brilliant. Um, it changes the approach. It t- changes the style of planning. It t- changes the way in which you interact with the students. Um, so there's no pre-prepared resources. There's no slides. It's It's all drawn live onto the board and i loved it oh my god what a what a twist to end <laughs> even and that even that that's coming from a man who'd be a fan of jojibra and the animations like is that not a bit extreme getting rid of all technology like that it is and isn't it fantastic <laughs> <laughs> we may have to disagree on this one as well, but okay fine i'll uh, yeah okay I'll, I'll ponder that one flip it right? Uh, but yeah, honestly, Ed, thanks so much for your time. That was absolutely fascinating discussion. And who knows, we may get you on for a part three at some time. No problem. I hope I haven't bored people to death. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, okay. So there you have it. There was my interview with Ed Southall. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I'm sure you did. Ed is a fascinating guy, so, so knowledgeable. And what I particularly liked about that is Ed went over to Japan with expectations, but also with an open mind. And he didn't come away saying, flipping out, we've got to abandon absolutely everything we're doing in the UK. And likewise, he didn't come away saying, well, that's all rubbish. It'll never work back home. He's, he's tried to look and think, right, what can we take? What bits can I incorporate into my practice? And I thought that the emphasis on the different ways of students approaching things was interesting. And of course, Ed and I had a minor little disagreement at the end, and I'm, I'm sticking to my guns there. I still think there's a danger that getting kids to share too many ideas and too many thoughts in that initial skill acquisition phase is a potentially dangerous thing. But I am all for, at some stage, and for me it comes later, kids articulating the different ways they approach things and students learning from each other in that sense. And I thought that was fascinating. But I thought what was equally fascinating was Ed making the point that he felt that teachers in the UK, and of course Ed was very clear to point out he's generalising here, he had a limited experience in Japan, and his experience in the UK is limited to the kids he's worked with and the teachers he's worked with. But to just generalise for a second, the math teaching in the UK is better at not losing students. Now, there's a there's a, a dodgy thing about engagement, that engagement, according to Professor Rob Coe, is a poor proxy for learning. And I, I believe that. Just because kids are engaged, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're learning. 
But I'm not entirely sure the other, um, you can flip that the other way around. And when Ki when Ed's talking about those Japanese students who he could see are not engaged and are starting to kind of slip away, get bored and stuff at the end, I'm not convinced those students are learning. And of course, there's going to be the exceptions. Of course, there's the distracted student who you think isn't listening to you at all and in the end ends up with an A star or a grade nine or whatever. But I think there are the exceptions. And as a general rule, if we can keep students on task, keep them focused, keep them working, keep them thinking, then it's got to be a better thing. And Ed made the point that he reckons we in the UK are better at that. And possibly that's because we have to be, because we don't have this culture. We don't have the luxury of students who, and again, I'm generalizing, who want to be there, who are desperate, who are clinging on to our every word. We don't have that. We don't necessarily have the supportive culture from all parents where math teaching and school in general and education is at the forefront of their minds. And it's the main thing and they are lucky to be there and so on. So we have, well, I mean, it's an almost impossible job. We have to keep our kids focused. We have to keep them working right to the end. We don't have that luxury of being able to just talk one-on-one -on -one to students for 20 minutes and um, kind of chucking questions here there and everywhere um, and hoping that all the other kids stay with us so I thought that was interesting I thought it was a fascinating thing and the other thing I just wanted to talk um, about is, is struggle and this is something that I've, I've been thinking about loads recently and I've, I've made the point when I've been giving talks so apologies if you've heard this before but I just want to make the point that I'm not always convinced that struggle is a good thing and I think there are times we encourage our kids to struggle too much. And I'll just try and explain what I mean by that. So Ed made the point that um, there was a 15 minute period during the, that lesson on sequences where some kids were struggling and uh, some kids were not being able to figure out how many uh, dots I think it was were in the 10th pattern. They couldn't get to that answer of 40. Now, there's two things I'll say about that. Firstly, and as Ed pointed out himself, that probably isn't going to work for the vast majority of students in the UK. They're going to get disaffected. They're going to get distracted. They're going to get lost. And probably rightly so, because a key driver of motivation and a key driver of grit or positive mindset or whatever you want to call it, is students perceiving that if they do struggle, there's a chance that they're going to get there, that they're going to succeed. And it's just like, it's, it's standard, right? Like, if you're going to struggle at anything in life, if you have no belief that this struggle is actually going to be worth something, why the flipping heck are you going to bother? And for me, 15 minutes, that's a big ask. That's a big ask for kids to be struggling on something, especially when you're seeing classmates all around you getting things right and you're not. That takes some strength of character or some culture that's been built up for kids to keep going at that. So I think there's a danger there that getting kids to struggle too much reduces their motivation, makes them think, flipping out, what is the point in doing this? And that can spiral into a vicious circle. So that's one point I wanted to make. The second point about struggle is I don't think struggle is always a good thing in the sense that I don't think just because kids are struggling, it doesn't necessarily mean they're learning. Now, this has all come from my obsession with cognitive load theory that really started when I interviewed uh, Greg Ashman for this podcast and also my subsequent reading. And if you read some of Sweller's work, and there's links to this on my research page, if you go to mrbartonmaths.com forward slash teachers forward slash research, you'll find flipping loads of stuff on cognitive load theory. But the stuff about problem solving is fascinating. And the evidence there, based on the theory, suggests that novice learners can be struggling at problems, 
but not actually learning. So put yourself in the shoes of those students doing that linear sequencing activity. They could struggle, 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 but get to the end of the process and not actually learn something. And for Sweller and for the proponents of cognitive load theory, that's because of the way novices, and here I'm defining novices as domain-specific novices, so not just novice learners in general, but novices for this, in this particular example, at linear sequences, or the number bonds and the uh, numeric fluency that's needed to be able to do the kind of calculations. If you're a novice in that area, you can get so bogged down on the finer details of the problem so whether it be counting the dots, whether it be trying to see the relationship between the dots, your working memory's capacity is so full up that there's no spare capacity to almost kind of take a step back and take a global view of what you're actually doing. So you get so bogged down in the minute detail, you muddle away, struggle, struggle, struggle through the problem, you get to the end of it, and you think, well, not, not entirely sure how I got there. Now, I'm not saying that was the case with the students um, um, in the Japanese classroom that Ed observed. But it's certainly the case for some of the students that I see. They struggle their way through problems, get to the end of it, and they still haven't learnt it because they are novice. They are novices. They can't call upon fluent facts and procedures from long-term memory that are going to enable them to free up capacity in working memory to be able to actually look and think. Right, what's actually happened here? And in that instance, the evidence suggests that. A worked example, broken down, scaffolded by the teacher, is going to be far more effective than kids trying to struggle and problem solve independently. So just a couple of things I wanted to point out, um, but yeah, I, I thought it was flipping fascinating. And by that, by the way, I'm not saying that kids should always find things e easy and kids shouldn't struggle. The two things I'm saying is that too much struggle without the sense that kids can achieve, I believe is a bad thing. And struggle for novices on certain problems can actually result in them not actually learning anything. And in that sense, I believe it's a bad thing. Anyway, I go into that in far more detail um, on the research page, and there's tons of research out there that you can read about this. And I know tons of people will disagree with me, but hey, that's what it's all for, hey. So all that remains for me to do is once again thank my wonderful guest, Ed Southall. It was absolutely brilliant to have him back on the show. I hope we'll get him back on again in the near future. Um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And thank you to you, my loyal listener, for keeping listening. As I say, if you get a chance to give us a review, I would be eternally... Uh, eternally grateful for that spread the word about this podcast if you think it's useful if you think it's good cpd on the move that would uh, yeah that just makes me so happy to know people are listening and learning to this uh, learning from this and i shall return with another fantastic guest in the near future so take care of yourselves and bye for now <laughs>